everybody. Welcome to the Hallmarkies podcast. And today we are talking with another author. We love talking with authors. And today we have Amanda Cabot on. And thank you so much, Amanda, for coming on the podcast. Rachel, thank you for inviting me. This is really exciting. Yeah. So uh, what we like to do with new guests is we like to find out a little bit about you. And how did you get started? What was your kind of inspiration for getting started as a writer? Well, it happened when I was about seven years old. I had always been a, a very avid reader. But what happened when I was seven was my family moved from Texas to Western New York. And we moved in March, which is technically yeah. spring, but in Western New York, uh, a lot of snow, brown mm-hmm. snow that's left over. It was a tough move for me. I mean, talk about you know moving in the middle of a school year to a whole different climate. And I needed to escape. And so becoming a writer seemed like the right thing to do. I could tell stories where everything was happy and there wasn't any snow. And so I wanted to be a writer from the time that I was seven. The type of writing varied. There was the mm-hmm. year when I thought I would be a playwright and I produced, uh, wrote and produced two um, plays for my fifth grade class. Oh, cute. Uh, they never they never quite made it to Broadway. I mean, <laughs> the title of one was all about thermometers. Okay, now That's we're intriguing. talking fascinating. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it was it was something we were studying. The costumes were fabulous, as you uh, can imagine. Yeah. Another year, I wanted to be a newspaper reporter, but eventually, I realized that what I most wanted, what I most loved to read, was fiction. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I write. Did you have books growing up that were your kind of favorite that you that you championed? <laughs> Little Women, yes. the Anne of Green Gables series. Mm-hmm. You'll, see, you'll see a theme here. You know, the heroines <laughs> were writers. Right. <laughs> yeah. So those were yeah, those favorites. those were two of my favorites. Uh, Little Women was the first big book that I ever really remember reading that uh, that I was like proud that I had finished you know that it was I, I'm not sure if it was third grade I feel like it was third grade we'd like to take a second from this episode of the podcast to celebrate our sponsor of this episode and that is the Hallmarkies Patreon do you love Hallmarkies podcast do you want an inside scoop into what happens on the podcast do you want early access to episodes and loads of cool perks now is the time to become a patron of Hallmarkies Podcast. By becoming a patron, you get to access our patron Facebook group. You can request episodes or even be a guest on the podcast. And most importantly, any patron can join our monthly movie watch-alongs with stars like Paul Campbell, Natalie Hall, and more. It's as low as $2 a month to join in and become a special part of the Hallmarkies family please consider and we will love you forever go to patreon.com slash hallmarkies that's patreon.com slash hallmarkies preferred more sort of realistic books over the fantasy books growing up uh i, I about as fantasy as i got was um was world doll I, I did love world doll but his books are mostly about about normal kids put in like fantastical situations you know like charlie and matilda and you know things like that so 
but, uh, but yeah, that, that was, that was some favorites of mine as well. So, um, so what, how did you end up with your first, I'm always curious with authors about how they get that first book. Cause it seems like that's like, would be the biggest hurdles that first, before you have an agent, before you have anything, oh, how, yeah. how, how did you get that first book? Absolutely. It is the toughest one. Well, I had yeah. this goal that I was going to sell my first book before I was, before my 30th birthday. And the year that I turned 29 was another one of these sort of traumatic years. Uh, my husband and I moved from one location to another and it was difficult. You know, it was one of those things where I, I had a day job and the interview, everything looked great. Then first day at work and it's like, is this a nightmare here? <laughs> so it was not a real happy year. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, I, I really need to get to work on this book. Now, I had always wanted to write something, uh, to write romantic suspense like Victoria Holt, Mary Stewart, not mm -hmm. what we call romantic suspense today. And it's like, okay, how am I going to get started? Well, it was right. It was Thanksgiving weekend, came home from a trip, turned on the TV, and Harlequin had an ad on TV, a commercial, which they don't normally do. Yeah. Well, I had never read a Harlequin romance, but I thought, you know, maybe I should just start with the romance part of this. So I went mm -hmm. off to the store, uh, bought two Harlequins, because at that point there were only two lines. I read them and said, hmm, this makes sense. I could start with the romance and add the suspense later. Mm -hmm. So I wrote my first romance. It was a short contemporary romance set in France, um, part of France that I knew quite well because I had lived there. I sent it off to Harlequin and guess what happened? Form rejection. Right. Well, I was <laughs> devastated. It took me about a month before I said, you know, if it was good enough to send to Harlequin, it's good enough to send to someone else. And I discovered that Dell Publishing Company had a line called Candlelight Romances, which were similar. So here I am, totally naive. I send the letter off to Dear Editor. I mean, I didn't know you were supposed to find out the, the editor's name and all that. I sent it right. off to Dear Editor. Well, Dear Editor, uh, Vivian Stevens, who's famous in the romance community, was new to her job. It didn't bother her that she got this dear editor letter. She loved the story. She loved the setting. And so one week before my 30th birthday, Aww. I left the book. That's so cool. Oh, you must have Which been makes so it, excited. Makes it sound easy. Selling the second oh, no. book was a whole lot harder. Interesting. You, know, you, you think after the first book that, well, this is easy street. No, not true. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't think it would be easy street, but you think, oh, at least then you've had, you have the contacts, you have the, uh, you know, a lot of times you maybe get an agent uh, and, uh, but, but it sounds like it, that was, it was tough. It was. Your second one. It yeah. Was. Well, That's the market changed and I didn't change quickly enough mm -hmm. to see what was happening. But, yeah. Uh, but, you know, I did ultimately sell more and uh, yeah. yeah. Now you have 40, over 40 novels. That's amazing. <laughs> well, it's been a long time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now I noticed that you had, you had them in trilogies. Most of your, most of your sets in trilogies. 
and uh, they looked like they had a bunch of different time periods. And so I was curious if you have a favorite time period to write in, and then also how do you decide, okay, like this next trilogy is going to be current. This one's going to be, you know, 18, 18, you know, eighties. This one's going to be, you know, what, whatever might be, what, how do you, how, how does that all work? Well, we'll start with the contemporary versus historical. Yeah. Um, my first books were contemporaries and then I wrote, they were for the secular market. Then I wrote a historical and discovered I really, really loved writing historicals. And I wrote in different time periods. When I started selling to the Christian market and to Ravel very specifically, I had my first series was set in the Texas Hill Country in the period right before the Civil War. I didn't want to deal with the war. Mm -hmm. I wanted, and I didn't really want to deal with the aftermath of the war. I wanted what some would call the golden age. So that was the first series. Uh, then I switched to after this, well, then I had a Wyoming series. Mm -hmm. uh, and then at Ravel's request, I wrote the contemporary series, the Texas Crossroads, which got excellent reviews. Uh, the sales weren't as great as anyone wanted. And part of that was because when readers saw my name on a book, they were expecting a historical. Mm. They weren't expecting a contemporary. And so I went back to writing historicals. Um, the Cimarron Creek series was the first one after the contemporary. When I started that first book, I felt like I had come home. I realized that even though I enjoyed writing the contemporaries, and they were fun. I mean, it was fun dealing with modern times and modern technologies and, and characters with modern problems. But being back in the 19th century was where I was really, really comfortable. Mm -hmm. So some of my books are set prior to the Civil War. Some are set in the 1880s. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't have a huge preference for one time period over the other. I like both of them. Mm -hmm. So what do you think, why do you think you're drawn to trilogies so often? What is it about? Um, that? Well, that's what Ravel likes. Oh, okay. that that's, <laughs> that that's the sweet spot. I okay. mean, there are a few exceptions. I mean, you've got Irene Hannon's Hope Harbor series, Contemporaries, which is going to go on hopefully forever. Mm -hmm. Um but, you know, Irene Hannon is an absolutely best-selling author, so she can pretty much write her own roles. But Ravel prefers trilogies, and I like trilogies. Mm -hmm. Although I have mm -hmm. to say that when I get to the end, I really hate to leave the town that I've created. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to do more books of that town, but it doesn't always happen. Right, right. Okay. Uh, would you consider yourself a pantser or a plotter when you're writing? Absolutely a plotter. Oh, an extreme okay. plotter. Oh. <laughs> I when I I can remember describing my process at a luncheon where there were three authors speaking, and I was the first, and I was describing how I write. And one of the others in the middle of it just jumped up and went, Never do that. How can anybody write that way? <laughs> well, I mean, the truth is there's only one right way to write. And that's the one that works for you as an author. Yeah. And for me, being a plotter works. 
Mm-hmm. I do a brief synopsis. That's my selling tool. Then mm-hmm. I outline all of the scenes that I expect to happen in the book in random order. And then I put them together in what appear to be logical order, divide them into chapters. So I know what's happening in each chapter, how many scenes I have, and I write the first draft. By the time I get to the end of the first draft, and I call it my skeleton, it's kind of ugly, like those Halloween skeletons, but it's the framework that I need. When I get to the end of that first draft, I know what changes I have to make. I have to do more than just putting the flesh on this skeleton. Sometimes I I change subplots, I change character names, but I keep on working. And so, yeah, I am a plotter. Nice. So you map out kind of what you want the story to be. And then like, do you do like character summaries and things like that along the I way? I don't do character summaries. Um, hmm. I know my, I, I always think I know my characters really well when I start the first draft. It's when I get to the end of the first draft that I go, oh, I didn't know those people as well as I thought I did. <laughs> and I find new aspects to them, new dimensions. And those are the fun things to put in in the second draft. Mm-hmm. Now, I hate first drafts. I, <laughs> I think they would be stressful. <laughs> yeah. And I love second drafts, which mm-hmm. my husband says it's because I'm an editor at heart. And he may <laughs> be right. Uh Because, of course, I'm editing at that point. I'm taking this framework that I built and making it into a whole story. Do you have like a writer's group that that goes through those drafts with you and things like that? And you go through theirs? Uh, No, I (laughs) used to have critique partners. No, I I lead a writer's group, but that's different. Um, And we meet at this point, we meet every other month virtually. We mm-hmm. used to be a monthly in-person, but COVID changed everything. Sure, yeah. Um, I used to have critique partners way back when, but I don't anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two local writers who are really good friends. We call ourselves the Three Musketeers. Mm-hmm. And occasionally I'll bounce plot points off them, but nobody sees my drafts. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah. I, I finish them and they go off to my editor at Ravel. Mm-hmm. Cool. Good. All right. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about the new book, uh, After the Shadows? What's it about? Okay. Well, let's start with this incredible cover. Yeah. I love the cover. <laughs> I enjoyed fabulous. the book. Oh, I did. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I've had great covers from Ravel before, but this is in a class of its own. Yeah. If you look at the cover, you see that there's a house on there. And it's a house that you would not expect to find in the Texas Hill Country. Good reason for that. It was built by a man from Alabama who wanted to move to the Hill Country and bring his sweetheart, marry her, bring her to Texas. Her father owned a plantation in Alabama and he said, no son, you're not taking my daughter anywhere until you can provide for her the way I have. You need to be able to give her a home that's at least equal to what she has here. So he builds this house, basically a plantation house. Looks way out of place in um, Sweetwater Crossing, but that's his house. This is before the Civil War, or as they would have called it, the War of Northern Aggression. 
He's building the house. Lincoln is elected in early 1861. The Southern states start to secede from the Union. Clive Finley, the man who built this house, disappears. He just leaves abruptly. And everyone assumes that he has gone to back to Alabama to fight with his, his countrymen. That's not exactly what happened. <laughs> That's the underlying, this, is, this whole series is called The Secrets of Sweetwater Crossing. And that's the biggest secret and the one that readers don't get the answer to until the third book. And that is what happened to Clive. So now we've, we've got this house. It's turned over to the minister, Joseph Vaughn, and he and his family live there. He has three daughters. It's what we would call a blended marriage. Of course, they didn't use those terms in the 19th century. After the shadows is the story of Emily, the oldest of the daughters. Um, she is not Joseph's daughter. Her mother was widowed and she was a daughter there. Second daughter is from Joseph's first marriage. And then the third one is the one that Prudence and Joseph had together. So we've got Emily. She is a recent widow. She's coming out of what was supposed to be a fairy tale marriage and turned into a nightmare. It became an abusive marriage. She comes back to Sweetwater Crossing and discovers that her father is dead. She finds him hanging from a noose in the barn, an apparent suicide. Everyone else, including her sister, accepts that this was suicide. She won't. She said, no, my father would never have taken his own life. So the underlying mystery in After the Shadows is what really happened to Joseph Vaughn? Was it suicide? Or was it, as Emily believes, murder? Yeah, it's very intriguing. We'd like to take a second and thank our sponsor for this episode of the podcast. Who doesn't love a second chance? New this March from bestselling author Melody Carlson is Second Time Around, a sweet story that Publisher Weekly calls perfect for fans of clean romance. When empty nester Mallory Farrell inherits a rundown tourist shop, she never expects to rediscover her love for the funky coastal Oregon town or her now-widowed teenage crush. With his help, she may just be able to renovate the shabby shop and her lackluster love life. Buy second time around today at bakerbookhouse.com to get 30% off and free U.S. shipping. That's bakerbookhouse.com. You also have Craig and his son, the, the new school, school teacher. His house burns down, so he's looking for a place to live. And, uh, and Emily decides to rent out the house as uh, a um, boarding house. And that makes her sister very upset. And she ends up having Craig and Noah, I think is the sense Noah living yeah. at the house. Uh, and, uh, and so how did you come up with Emily and Craig as characters? Well, Emily started off, um, I've always as a woman who is going to have a happily ever after, after a nightmare. I have several friends who had, who were in very abusive relationships, some in marriage, some not. And 
it took them a while to recover from that. Sure. And I wanted to show that, yes, you can recover, that there are second chances, that love can come the second time around. Now we've got Emily who doesn't even want to think about marriage again. And quite frankly, the whole idea of having Craig, an adult male in her house is frightening to her, but she has to do it because it's the right thing to do. I mean, she can't leave this man homeless and he's got this young child who manages to capture her heart really quickly. So she invites him in. Now, Craig, on the other hand, lost his wife, his beloved wife, in a freak accident. He never plans to remarry because no one can replace Rachel. Well, you know, I write romance, so you can guess that <laughs> somehow or another, these two are going to figure out that they're just right for each other and that by the end of the book, they are going to be ready for happily ever after. Now, this is the first of your books that I've read, and so I don't know. Uh, is Does this book uh, tackle darker themes than some of your other books, or is it is this uh, something that you do in most of your books? This isn't necessarily a darker book than some. Um, I, I believe in the healing power of love. And so my characters are frequently put in positions where they're wounded mm -hmm. because then they have to heal. Yeah. And the second, the, the first trilogy that I wrote for Ravel was called um, Texas Roses. First book was Paper Roses, where the heroine comes to Texas as a mail order bride and discovers that her husband-to-be has been murdered. Meanwhile, she's received all these letters. I call it my uh, mail order bride meets Cyrano de Bergerac, because no. it turns out it was his brother who actually wrote the letters, but we're dealing with a murder there. The second book in that series um, is the one where I have received the most positive feedback from readers. And that's one where the heroine is coming to Texas to her former brother-in-law's wedding. She's in a stagecoach. It is robbed, her parents are killed, and she's raped. I mean, talk about- Yeah incredibly difficult first scene to write. Yeah. And I mean, the, the research that I did on that was absolutely heartbreaking, but she's got to recover from being raped. That was the book, as I said, where I have received the most positive feedback, people writing to say to me, you know, <clears throat> watching Priscilla heal, seeing how she dealt with this trauma has given me the strength to do the same thing. I've had people say that my book, which is fiction, helped them in ways that counseling and nonfiction books hadn't, which tells me there's an incredible power in fiction. Oh, yeah. Because when people are reading it, they're slightly removed, but they can watch other people dealing with the same problems that they have. Mm -hmm. And they can learn from that and they can heal. Yeah. Well, yeah, because stories can be very healing, whether they're true or not, uh, whether fiction or nonfiction. Uh, the, if we connect with the characters uh, and their story, it's, it is very important for sure. Uh, so that makes, that makes sense to me. 
it's the underlying truth. Yeah. You know, yeah. Whether the fact is fiction or not, there's still this underlying truth that you can get through this. Yeah. You yeah. can heal. You're strong. So you've written a number of books in the 1880s. Uh, so maybe f- what kind of research did you have to do in order to write these books? Uh, did you research into Texas in 1880? What did you have to do? Well, I've, <laughs> I'm a reader, so I've got a, a number of research books. There uh-huh. is a uh, what I call the ultimate Texas book, which is called Lone Star by T.J. I think it's T.J. Fehrenbach that gives me the history uh, filled with all kinds of fascinating information about Texas. Uh The period, it's there. Then I have a costume book, uh, Lucy Barton's historic costume for the stage that Uh shows me what people wore. And what's great about that book is it doesn't just give you pictures, but because it's designed for people who are creating costumes for the stage, it tells you what kind of fabrics would be used. So you get a real feel for what did people wear in these time periods? And that's important. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's little details here and there that bring a book to life Mm -hmm. and that add authenticity to it. And of course, I I lived in Texas at one point and I've been back to, to travel to see what the countryside looks like, mm-hmm. uh, what what does the air feel like, what does it smell like, you know, all of those little tiny details are important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, hey, that's got to be one of the perks of uh, writing books is you could expense a, <laughs> a research trip. <laughs> that's yeah. what I- <laughs> We'd like to take a second and thank our sponsor for this episode of the podcast. It's the Hallmarkies Merch Store. Are you looking for that perfect gift for the postable, hardy, or hallmarky in your life? What about getting that t-shirt or hoodie that will help you stand out at your next holiday party? Now is the time to check out the Hallmarkies merch store. Full of festive designs by artists like Jessica Miller, Carrie from Hallmark Comics, and more. You can even have more than just shirts, but totes, cell phone cases, notebooks, mugs, and more. And it isn't just Hallmark. We have designs for Anna Green Gables, Man from Snowy River, The Nanny, and more. Every purchase at the merch store goes to help support the podcast and allows us to make the great content you know and love. There are frequent sales, so go to tpublic.com slash stores slash Hallmarkies or see the link in the description. That's tpublic.com slash stores slash Hallmarkies. So was Sweetwater Crossing, was that based on a particular place? No. Okay. My uh, my fictional towns are definitely fictional. Mm-hmm. When you have a mystery like you do at the center of this book, um, is that a challenge to write? Like keeping all your clues and keeping, I guess you said you're a, a big uh, plotter, uh, but uh, keeping the mystery working, is that hard? Uh, keeping it, it's one thing to do it in a single book, but to oh, span yeah. a trilogy creates a new set of problems. And... <laughs> I did that with the Cimarron Creek books. Um, I had the mystery of what happened to Aunt Bertha's daughter is introduced in the first book and isn't really answered until the third, mm-hmm. completely answered. And that was tough, you know, doing all of that and trying to not tell too much, but also not leave readers feeling that they were cheated in one of the first two books because they 
they didn't get the answers. I hate books that end with cliffhangers. Mm -hmm. I want things resolved. So I didn't think I'd ever do that again. Mm -hmm. Well, here I am back with Sweetwater Crossing. (laughs) (laughs) We've got the mystery of Clive Finley. It's alluded to in the first two books. um, And when readers get to book three and find out exactly what happened, I think they're going to say, oh, yeah, that's, that's why that happened or what happened but uh, so have you already finished the second book because this this is the first one right Emily first one yeah the second one has been through both rounds of editing okay it's coming out October 3rd of this year and I am almost done with the second draft on the third book nice so (laughs) it's like uh there's a, a shorter time frame in publication on these books it used to be one book every year you could count on an Amanda Cabot book each March. Mm-hmm. Well, it got switched up this time. So we yeah. have this one coming out in March. Um, Against the Wind comes out in October. And then the third one, which is Into the Starlight, will be a July of 2024 release. Nice. Well, but look the compressed schedule is like, okay, this is yeah. a little crazy. <laughs> Keeps me yeah, busy, that's, that's for sure. That's impressive. <laughs> Uh, the second one will be about Louisa. Is that right? Yeah. Yay. Well, that'll be good. I'll look forward to it. Um, is it challenging to work in the faith elements into the story? And uh, this one, you have a lot about the trust in God's timing, overcoming challenges, facing adversity, all of those the- like themes. Is that hard to do? I don't think so. Um, mm. Because it's intrinsic to my characters. And you see especially in this series, these, these women are all daughters of a minister. Mm-hmm. And so faith and the church has been a truly integral part of their lives. But that was also true for many people, even not ministers' children. In the 19th century, when you're talking about small towns in the 19th century, church was the center of the town. And you know, one of the interesting statistics is that in the 19th century, people didn't have a whole lot of books, but what did they have? They had a Bible. Yeah, a Bible. And so that became their reading material. That became the foundation of their lives. Yeah. I, is try, it hard? Not, Sorry, I try not to be preachy, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is it hard to build romantic tension in writing while keeping it a chase book? Is that, is that tough? I don't think so. Um, we're leaving certain things to the reader's imagination, and that's okay with me. Those are the mm-hmm. kinds of books I grew up on, mm-hmm. uh, where you don't need every detail, and the door is closed to the bedroom when you have mm-hmm. married characters. That happens to be my preferred style of reading. So it comes naturally in writing. Cool. Well, very good. We're definitely, I enjoyed reading the book. You did it. You answered all the questions. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thanks so much for coming on. And if people want to follow you on your, like your website or social media, what do they do? Uh, Go to www.amandacabot.com. I call it one-stop shopping. It's got links to everything. Awesome. We'll have that all in the description so everybody should check it out and we'll have our affiliate link for the book and, uh, and all the other information. So when does it come out? The, the new book? 
exactly two weeks from today, uh, nice. March 21st. Great. Well, very good. Uh, you shall definitely check it out. And thanks again for coming and talk with us. Thanks so much for inviting me, Rachel. <laughs> this was fun. <laughs> We'd like to thank Amanda for coming on the podcast. This was so interesting to get to talk to her and learn about her process and her experience and talk about the book. And so I hope you all enjoyed it and have all the information for the book in the description. So make sure to check that out. And you can find me at Rachel's Reviews, all of our social media, iTunes, YouTube, and on Rotten Tomatoes. So check that out. Also make sure you're following the podcast on Homeworkies Pod and Homeworkies Podcast, all of our social media. And you can also find, follow me on Goodreads. So check that out. And uh, if you are listening on iTunes, please leave your ratings and reviews. That really helps us a lot. And if you are watching on YouTube, please give the video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. We appreciate that so much. We also have our patron group and merch store. So check out that. And uh, thanks so much again to Amanda. And we'll talk to you all later. Bye, everyone.